Two weeks ago, when I was with you, we ended up talking about worship. And I was remembering that this morning as we sang that opening song. What a wonderful way to begin a time of worship. Come on, come on, come on, and celebrate. Every gathering of God's people ought to be, in one way or another, a time of celebration, shouldn't it? Because we have more to celebrate than all the unbelievers in the world. We have so much to celebrate because of Jesus. Sometimes when we think about our fellow Christians and wonder what we should pray for them, we're maybe not very sure. Obviously if there's illness we pray for healing, if there's some problem in the family we pray for a solution to that, etc, etc. But it's the one thing that really kind of sums up everything else that we should pray for our fellow Christians. I personally am inclined to believe that most Christians maybe don't pray all that much for their fellow Christians on a regular basis. For special situations, yes. But you see, when we turn to the scriptures, we find, for example, the Apostle Paul helps us not only to know how to pray and why to pray for our fellow believers, but perhaps what is the most important outcome of all such praying. And it's summed up in the passage I'm just about to read to you, so that you may know God better. That you may know God better. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you put in our hearts a desire to know you better. It is wonderful to know you at any level at all. But we have to confess that perhaps we haven't spent the time and made the effort we should have done to get to know you better. And we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit this morning so that the outcome will be that we'll really be drawn into a closer fellowship with you, Father, in our desire to know you better. So we're reading this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. So, we'll not read the whole of Ephesians chapter 1, it's a bit too long, but we'll pick up in verse 11. The previous verses ended with Paul speaking about God's ultimate aim to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And he says this, In him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since... I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Paul tells us the reason for his beginning to pray very regularly and very consistently, it seems, for these Christians in Turkey, in Ephesus. Let's think first of all about the reason for the prayer. He uses these words in verse 15, but he says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks and so on and praying for you. What was it that sparked off this new wave of prayer from Paul for these Christians in Turkey? Well, it was information. And that's why if the Lord leads us to pray for some missionary perhaps who's come and spoken at the church here as Andy and Heather have come and spoken here, if we are going to pray intelligently and meaningfully and helpfully for others in some Christian ministry, and it's rather important that we get information to know what's happening in their lives, what their needs are, etc., etc. And because of information, which Paul spells out in interesting detail here, he got to praying seriously and regularly for these believers. First of all, he speaks about the, the experience that they had had. He heard of the experience they'd had. After all, becoming a, a Christian is the biggest experience we can ever have in this life. And these good people had experienced new life in Jesus. And this is how he puts it. He, he says, you also were included in Christ. That's a wonderful expression, isn't it? To include literally means to shut in, to close in. It reminds us that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender our lives to him, we are encompassed in him, enclosed in him, the wonderful place to be, in Christ. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Yes, that's the process for all of us. We hear or we read and we believe and we are saved. We come to Christ. And then he says this, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, and so on. So he speaks about the experience they had. And the most significant thing, really, in a way, that he says about the consequence of their coming to Christ we know they had found new life. We know they're now included in Christ. We know they are saved people. They have eternal life. But look at what Paul says. He says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When I was a boy, I used to play with sealing wax. I had a little glass dish that I kept a little bit of uh, candle in. And I had a stick of sealing wax. 
And when I wrote very important letters, I got my seal out with AM, my initials, and a, and a seal, and I, I heated up the wax and the flame from the candle, and I dripped the wax, and I stamped my name and my initials on the back of my letter. You better believe it, this is from Sandy McKeith, you know? So, a seal is a symbol of several things. It's a symbol of authentication. It's to use an expression in Scotland, it's the real Mackay. Uh, because, you see, the seal is usually carrying the name or initials of the person who wrote the letter or sent the package. And it's not a fake. It's not some trick somebody's playing on you for somebody else. Nobody else could have put this particular seal on this particular letter or envelope or whatever. And the fact that we are stamped by the Holy Spirit is a sign of our being authentic, real Christians. Because, unfortunately, we live in a country and we live in a world where there's a whole load of unreal Christians. There's a lot of nominal Christians. Right here in, in, in Buddhistburn, there are nominal Christians in many homes in this place. Ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, 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 we're baptized as a win. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes, I'm a Christian. I want a minute. Have you been born again? Oh, well, no. No, that's a bit over the top. There are many, many nominal Christians who have not come to know Jesus at all. But you see, the Holy Spirit coming into our life brings evidence that we are the real thing, authentic Christians. And then the, whole, the seal is also a sign of ownership. A man might buy a load of timber, for example, and he couldn't carry it all away as transport it to his place or away. But he might, in certain circumstances, put a seal on that consignment. And that would indicate that it had a new owner. It had been bought by this person whose seal is on this. Don't touch it. It's mine. Leave it alone. And in a sense, the Holy Spirit is a reminder that we now belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We're his property. Somebody, a Christian preacher, no doubt, wrote or, or said some years ago, there is no area of our lives, of course this would apply to non-Christians as well as Christians, there is no area of our lives over which God does not put his hand and say, mine, mine, ownership. And then, too, there's the idea of protection, you see, because the seal, if it came in a letter, uh, if the seal arrived, if the letter arrived with a seal unbroken, it would indicate that it had not been tampered with on the journey. It has been protected all the way through. The seal is still there. It's still intact. Ah. And then he says, This happened when you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Now we're very familiar with this word deposit in, in, in modern Britain. Because people go and buy a car. They don't always pay the full price for the car. They put down a deposit and they enter into a contract with the people selling the car that the remainder of the money due will be paid in the proper time. Hopefully. So a down payment is a deposit. And the Holy Spirit, says Paul, is the down payment in our life. 
in knowing the Lord, in knowing the Holy Spirit, we're now tasting the power of the worlds to come, as referred to in Hebrews. Um, we're already sampling new life in Jesus. But it's only a deposit. It's only the beginning of something that goes on throughout the rest of our life and on into eternity. It's a deposit guaranteeing that the rest will come. Isn't that great? You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance for all the future. And by the way, the Greek word here for deposit, arabon, is in modern Greek the word for an engagement ring. You see? The engagement ring, in a sense, is not so much a down payment, but it's a deposit, it's a start, it's, it's a symbol that there's a, something greater and more wonderful following on. Now we're engaged, boy and girl, but there's more to come, better to come, there's marriage to come. And so this word is used actually today in Greek for an engagement ring. In addition to this information that Paul had received, he, well, part of the information really was, was evidence, because he heard also about their faith in the Lord Jesus and, notice, their love for all the saints. I think it's fair to say that nominal Christians, people who don't know Jesus, are not terribly good at loving each other, especially if they don't like each other. But Christians fall in love with other Christians because we're commanded by Jesus to love one another and his love is poured into our hearts and all we have to do is to release it to other people. It's simple, isn't it? So all this built up in Paul's mind the evidence that these people really, really, really had been born again. They were real, genuine Christians and they needed prayer. So, yeah, in addition to all that, we haven't time to look at it in detail, but in addition to all that, there was the insight that Paul had from the Lord, which is really summed up in the opening verses of that wonderful passage. It's just full of Christian theology. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. The whole thing is all spelled out in detail there. Insight the Apostle Paul was given by the Lord. This is how God goes about his business of saving individuals. It didn't happen yesterday. It began before the creation of the world. And that's a long, long time ago. So, so much for the reason for the prayer. Now, what was the burden of the prayer? What was Paul's great concern in praying for these people? What should you and I be greatly concerned about? in praying for fellow Christians. How can we best help our fellow Christians in the way we pray for them? Well, Paul tells us. It's summed up, as I said already, in that wonderful little phrase that you may know him, that's God he's talking about, that you may know him better. Now, go to those saying that the key essential to getting to know somebody better it's not reading books that they happen to have written. It's not observing them from a distance of a few thousand miles, if you can do that through modern Skype or Scope or whatever they call it. It's actually spending time with a person. That's the key, isn't it? How do husbands and wives get to know each other? 
But we knew each other a lot better after 20 years than we did after two weeks. Yes, because we spent time together. That's the key to getting to know anybody better. To spend time together. And that's a challenge to us. It's also an encouragement to us. God wants us to get to know him better. I'm glad I know God an awful lot better now than I did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Of course I do. Because I've spent time with him. We've got to feed on his word. We've got to read his word every day so he can speak into our lives. We've got to speak to him every day. There's a dialogue going on here. There's interaction. And it's not dull. It's not boring. It's exciting. And of course it's the one thing or one of the many things that Satan tries to stop us doing. Yes? We've all experienced that. I'm a bit too sleepy to pray today, I think. I'm too busy to pray today. Rubbish. <laughs> it's too serious. It's too important not to do it. To feed in God's word and to pray to God. To build up that relationship we have by the grace of God with the God of the whole universe. But Paul spells out more detail here. He says, I'm not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now just pause for a minute. I've not stopped giving thanks for you. Most people, when we pray for other people, they maybe don't give thanks for them. They just get on praying for them. Hmm. But I remember years ago noticing that in situations where people came to the front after the service for prayer ministry, laying on of hands, with or without laying on of hands, to be prayed for individually, those who were doing the praying would very often begin by saying, Father, I thank you for this precious child of yours. It's a good way to begin in praying for other believers, to give thanks for them. So Paul begins by giving thanks for them. And he says, I keep on, I keep on asking. In other words, it became a daily practice, I imagine, or certainly a weekly practice. It's going on and on and on on a regular basis. I keep on asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Oh, what a well, 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 well. The same Holy Spirit with whom we are sealed at the point of conversion is the key to our getting to know God better. And Paul speaks of the ministry of the Spirit in this con context in terms of spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We all need wisdom if we're going to live properly. Knowledge is a collection of facts, a bunch of information, but wisdom is knowing how to apply that in practical situations. And the knowledge without the wisdom is not very much good to us. So knowledge and wisdom go together. And wisdom is so important. And I've pointed out to you before, I'm sure, that I think it's wonderful that the very first instance in Scripture where we're told of someone being filled with the Holy Spirit is not to make that person more spiritually minded, better at worship, better at prayer, better at Bible study. No, 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 no. It's to make that person a better craftsman, plumber, joiner, builder, whatever. It's there in Exodus chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, and I've filled him with the Spirit of God. This is the first place in Scripture we read about somebody being filled with the Spirit. 
I filled them, says God, to Moses with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, etc., etc., in order to lead the team that was going to construct the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the portable meeting place where God met with his people. And for that task, for that very responsible job, this man was filled with the Spirit. So we don't need to be filled with the Spirit just to help us to pray better or understand the Bible better or worship better. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us for everyday living so that we have wisdom in all our dealings, in all our contacts, in all our conversations. That's valuable beyond words. Wisdom. You remember in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit. When we really get drenched in Holy Spirit power, baptized in the Spirit, there are certain gifts, reliefs in our lives. And one of them is the word of wisdom. And this is so important and can save situations again and again. Take, for example, a situation where ah, a church, a fellowship like yourselves, you're faced with a big decision. You've got to choose A or B and you can't have both. It's one way or the other. So you pray about this, you discuss this, you share your insights and so on, and you decide that plan A is what you ought to go for. And then one member of the fellowship says, you know, I believe the Lord's giving me a word of wisdom here. And this is what, it, this is what he's saying. He's saying, and he spells out the detail, that it's not plan A we should be going for. It's plan B. Oh, oh. And later on, with hindsight, it becomes evident that if they'd gone with plan A, it would have been disastrous. These things happen in real life. So wisdom is incredibly important. And it's available. James says in chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. it will be given him. It's a gift. You can have it every day in life. And I'm greedy. And I'm, I, ask, I ask for it every day in life. And if I've got any wisdom at all, it's only because God gave it to me. Yes, it's there. We need it. And then he says the Spirit is also the Spirit of Revelation. Now, Revelation and information are not the same. Information we can get from anybody. Revelation we get from God. Revelation is revealing, uncovering something that was there before, but we didn't see it. We didn't know it was there. To us it was invisible. You remember how the Lord Jesus spoke to the disciples one day and he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? Who, who, who do people say I am? Who do they think I am? And they answered him. And then he said, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, always a bit impulsive, said right away, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And immediately Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, this was not revealed to you by man. No human being told you this. But by my Father in heaven. Revealed by the Father in heaven. And of course, that word revealed occurs in very serious contexts in the word of God. I think not long ago perhaps we referred to these verses in Romans chapter 1 
where Paul writes to the Christians in Rome and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. That's the great thing that God reveals to us through the gospel. We are not righteous in ourselves. We are sinful in ourselves. And God says, I have taken steps. I have done something decisive so that you can become righteous with a righteousness that will be a gift from me. And that's where the cross comes in and Jesus took our place. He suffered in our place. He was made sin, the Bible says. And we don't really understand what that could mean. He was made sin. Jesus never sinned. But he was made sin when he died on the cross in your place and in mine. So that we could have the opposite of sin, which is righteousness. And the gospel tells us here, you can have this absolutely free if you will repent and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And the extraordinary thing is, maybe it shouldn't surprise us, that the very next verse that Paul writes in Romans 1 speaks of the alternative to righteousness. He says the wrath of God, the holy anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The sometimes Bible facts are hard to face, hard to accept. But every human being on the face of the earth this morning is either under the righteousness of Jesus, clothed, covered, blessed with the righteousness of Jesus, or they're under the anger of a holy God who cannot tolerate sin, who knows how to sin this destructive sin is, and who hates it, and cannot have it anywhere near him. These are the alternatives. There's no others. Either righteousness or wrath. And we only know these things because God has revealed them to us. He has shown them to us. Oh, wow. So by what means are we getting to know God better? Well, not at all without the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of revelation. But what is the result of our getting to know God better? Well, we have a fuller understanding, a richer understanding, a fuller appreciation of what God has made available to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we rightly and regularly focus on the fact of forgiveness. And that is, that's the beginning. It's essential. Without that forgiveness of our sins, we couldn't have any dealings with God. But God begins blessing us by taking away the evil, forgiving our sins, and giving us, in place of that, the righteousness of Jesus and the gift of his Spirit to continue his work in our hearts. But then a whole lot more begins to be shown to us that is ours because we now belong to Jesus. What does Paul tell us here? He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Inner enlightenment. The heart is often described as the place where that happens. And he says, I'm praying that God will turn the lights on in your heart. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may know. Now know, very often in scripture, means know in experience. Know by experience. It means more than that. 
certain things we know in advance of, of experience. But he says, I'm praying that you may know, first of all, the hope to which he has <coughs> called you. If we turn the page to Ephesians chapter 4, it begins like this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Oh, so when the gospel comes to us, it is referred to as a calling. A calling. It's a more compelling word than invitation. You may be invited to a friend's party and you say, I don't really want to go to that. I'll find an excuse somehow for not going to that event. So you, you refuse the invitation. But you see, the gospel comes to us as more than an invitation. The gospel comes to us as something that grips us and grabs us and in a sense demands a response <laughs> and a positive response at that. And here is Paul saying, you, you receive this calling from God and that's what brought you to Jesus. And he says later on in that same passage, he says that there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope. The first thing he mentions in connection with our being called to Christ is the blessing of hope. Chapter 2, verse 12, Paul is reminding these people in Ephesus and Turkey what they were like before they were saved. He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship in Israel and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope. Without hope and without God in the world. Now hope is a word that we use very widely, very commonly, very loosely in a sense. Uh, and with a different meaning for it than the Bible has. Oh, yes. Because the things we hope for that are not promised in the Bible, the things we hope for that are not promised in the Bible, we may receive... And we may not. We're planning some outdoor event and we hope it won't rain on that day, but there's no guarantee if you live in Scotland that it will not rain. So that's not a hope that is certain. Ah, but when we come to dealing with God, the promises he makes to us are certain of fulfillment. And therefore hope equals certainty, which is much more positive and much more encouraging. Christ in you the hope of glory is a phrase that occurs in Colossians chapter 1. Once I have the Lord Jesus Christ in my life, I have this absolute 100% certainty that this journey which has begun is going to have a glorious ending. I'm going to see my Lord Jesus. I'm going to be in his presence in heaven. I'm going to experience the most wonderful future because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. That's absolutely guaranteed. It's certain. Now I suggest to you that we need to remember these things because the enemy is pretty clever at causing us to feel a bit sorry for ourselves and you know, not very optimistic and can't be bothered and all that kind of stuff. And it's good for us to remember what's up front there, what's promised for the future. One of the promises is the hope of glory. But it's also hope operating in the here and now. The hope for tomorrow, the hope for next year. Uh, and a verse that I love very much and I've shared with you before is there in Romans chapter 15. 
First of all, earlier in the chapter, Paul says this. He says, everything that was written in the past, that's the Old Testament, was written to teach us. So that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then later in that chapter, in chapter verse 13, he says, may the God of hope, the God of hope, the God who gives hope, you have to remember hope equals certainty when we're dealing with God. The God who is a God of certainty, a God who can promise something and know he is able to deliver it and will deliver it. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. See, God doesn't mean us to go around joyless and, and, and lacking peace. That's not his will for us. We find ourselves feeling, whoa, really droopy and where's my joy gone? It's gone, disappeared somehow. And peaceful, I don't know much about that either. But that's not God's will. He wants us to enjoy joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is again, you see, ridiculously optimistic because we're believers. In the eyes of the world, we're probably crackpots or worse. But in the eyes of God, these are my children. These are the people to whom I've made these promises. And I'm going to deliver on these promises. So hope is there. And of course, in the face of bereavement, it is especially <laughs> precious to have the hope of which the Bible speaks. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. And that is the Christian description of the death of a Christian. Falling asleep in union with Jesus. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. There's one place where this is evident. It's in a funeral service. I've conducted more funeral services than I care to remember. And it's wonderful when those, the person who has been taken from us is a Christian and has gone home to be with the Lord. And most of the people who have gathered to remember that person are Christians. And in the midst of sadness, real sadness, real sorrow, we have hope as well. But a Christian, a non-Christian funeral can be a very gloomy affair. And if all the relatives are non-Christians too, oh my, oh my. It's a very different atmosphere altogether because there's no reason for hope. Unfortunately, some people have false reasons for hope. They think we're all going to get home at the end of the day and it's not true. Hope. Paul says, I wanted to experience hope. What else? He goes on to speak about the riches of our inheritance. Um, the riches of his inheritance, his glorious inheritance in the saints. This is variously understood by different people, but I think probably the right way to look at it is what is referred to by Peter in First Peter chapter 1, where he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. In his great mercy he has given us new births into a living hope. Hope again. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never spoil or perish or fade kept in heaven for you. So he's talking again about what lies ahead beyond the sphere of this present life. Our inheritance. You see, for the, for the Old Testament Jewish people, inheritance for them meant a plot of ground in the land of Canaan. 
a piece of land, a piece of real estate in the land of Canaan where they could settle and multiply and earn their living. That was their inheritance. Because our, our inheritance is spiritual. It's in heaven. And it's guaranteed. And then finally, this really excites Paul when he gets to praying, saying the third thing. He's spoken about hope, he's spoken about the inheritance, and now he says, and I wanted to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Yes, that power, he says, is like the working of God's mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given not only in the present but also in the future. And God placed all things under the feet of Christ and appointed him to be head over everything in the world, everything in the universe. And here's the, here's the amazing thing for the church. It's for the church. It's for us. It's for our enrichment. It's for our good. It's for our blessing. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see, just as the Bible would indicate, there should be no joyless Christians going around. Nor should there be any powerless Christians going around. Because God says and through his word, through Paul here, that the power that God releases in our lives by the Holy Spirit is the same power God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. Oh! Doesn't that excite you? What is it? You see, so often, oh, I don't, I'm not able to do this, I can't do that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. And now, not only has that power been released in our lives, but the same Jesus who was raised from the dead was taken back to heaven as we know. And is seated at the Father's right hand, he's on the throne. And the Father has placed all things, and that means all things, under the feet of Jesus. You see, our financiers like to think they run the world. No, they don't. Our politicians think they run the world. No, they don't. The overall authority operating throughout the world is the authority of Jesus. And his head over everything. For you and for me. For the sake of the church. There is nothing we can encounter in life, be it suffering, or acute sorrow, or anything else. There is nothing we can encounter in life over which Jesus does not have control and authority. Doesn't that mean I can put my head in the pillow at night and go to sleep and say, Okay Lord, you're, you're not going to sleep. <laughs> you can let me sleep. You're not going to sleep. They're going to continue overruling in the affairs of this crazy world. And what you're all, all you're doing in a sense is for the benefit of the church. We're not only a very important people, but a very privileged people. The people who know Jesus and have such, such blessings poured out upon us freely available to us so in our praying for one another let's take more time to pray for one another only as the Lord directs us don't promise to pray for people until you're sure God wants you to pray for them because people are, people will ask you to pray for them and you'll say oh yes I'll do that and then you have a kind of guilt trip about three weeks later oh I didn't, oh, I didn't know how to pray for them 
be wary of that. But God does lay people on our hearts. I told you already, he laid this congregation, this fellowship of my heart, shortly after I began preaching here. And I pray for you every day. Not individually, but as a group. <coughs> Praying for each other under the direction of God's Spirit is a very valuable thing to be doing. And ultimately, it's so that we get to know our Heavenly Father more and more. Better and better. It's worth all the effort. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you this morning that your ambitions for us, your desires for us, are almost unbelievably great. Truly wonderful. Beyond human understanding. And we ask that you will just whet our appetites this morning for a closer walk with you, Father, for a greater intimacy with you, Lord Jesus, for fuller, greater experiences of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.